So now uh, we've reached uh, 7.30, so I will officially open this, our uh, 794th regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable, and our first ever Zoom meeting of the Roundtable. Uh, I think uh, before we go further with the program, uh, I would like to just take a few seconds uh, to do what probably all of you have done today at uh, another time of the day, and that is just to reflect for a moment on September 11, 2001. None of us are ever going to forget that day, but I think since we're grouped together right now, if you would please, just a moment of silence. Never forget. Thank you. I felt very fortunate to get uh, Fergus Bordowitz to uh, present to us. Uh, I was lucky enough to have his publicist send me a, a courtesy copy of his yet to be published uh, book, Congress at War. Uh, I perused it lightly, not, uh, not uh, page by page or sentence by sentence. And uh, I found the, uh, the letter inside, which invited me to contact uh, the publicist to see if uh, Fergus would like to uh, speak to our group and the answer was yes, and here we are. Uh, Fergus is a noted independent historian, uh, and this Congress at War is his most uh, recent book. Uh, it was published earlier this year. It's his uh, eighth book, uh, uh, nonfiction book. Uh, in addition uh, to his books, he has written articles which have appeared in uh, virtually all of our best-known periodicals, uh, Smithsonian Magazine, American Heritage, Atlantic Monthly, Harper's, uh, also the Civil War Monitor, uh, I not noticed. He's also uh, written for the New York Times, uh, Washington Post. He uh, speaks frequently at universities and in other public forums. He also produced a documentary on, uh, documentary on Thomas Jefferson for uh, PBS. He uh, frequently reviews books for the Wall Street Journal uh, I uh, noticed recently, maybe a couple months ago, he reviewed a Scourge of War, uh, which is a biography of uh, William Tecumseh Sherman by our good friend, the eminent uh, military historian, Brian Holden Reed, who many of you will recall spoke to us in 2012. Uh, regarding his books, uh, notably, uh, 2005, Bound for Canaan, The Underground Railroad and the War for the Soul of America, was noted uh, to be uh, one of the 10 nonfiction, uh, best nonfiction books of 2005 by the American Booksellers Association and the, the best nonfiction uh, book of the year by the Great Lakes Booksellers Association. His book on the Compromise of 1850, America's Great Debate, Henry Clay, Stephen A. Douglas, and a Compromise that Preserved the Union was the winner of the 2012 Los Angeles Times uh, History Prize. It also was cited by the Washington Post as one of the best books of 2012. Uh, he wandered a bit uh, with his book after that uh, from uh, the Civil War uh, with First Congress, how James Madison, George Washington, and a group of extraordinary men invented uh, the government. Uh, but they then segued back uh, to the middle period, as we like to call it, with uh, Congress at War. He is now, as uh, some of you heard uh, before we went on air officially, that he's working on a book on Reconstruction. 
and I guess I could have I could have uh, dispensed with uh, this condensation of his uh, curriculum vitae, which is far more extensive than what what uh, I'm reciting here, because Fergus is a, a Civil War Roundtable member. He is a member of the uh, Washington D.C. Civil War Roundtable, so actually. He's one of us. We could have just left it at that, I suppose. Uh, but in any event, uh, I think uh, to try to sum up these books is impossible. We'll let the speaker speak. But what the publisher of the Washington Post had to say about the great debate, I think fits very, very well with what uh, Fergus has to say in his present book. The publisher said, it provides everything history readers want. Two things above all, a compelling story and a cast of characters who come convincingly to life. I don't know that there's anyone in the round table who would disagree that that quotation applies to the Civil War era, the decade before the war, and, uh, and certainly the war itself. Uh, the story of uh, the Congresses, I believe it's the 37th and 38th Congresses, uh, that fought with each other, fought with Lincoln, and also fought the war. Uh, is a compelling one, as uh, the publisher stated. But I think sometimes, too, in the background, a lot of us might forget, uh, maybe not this group, but a lot of Americans uh, do not recall that they set forces in motion that enabled the country to move forward after the war with the post-war uh, post expansion of the country, and also enacted programs that are still with us today and influence our life to a great deal uh, that we don't think about much. But we'll leave that uh, uh, that to our speaker, enough of me. Uh, so with that, Congress at War, how Republican reformers fought the Civil War, defied Lincoln, ended slavery, and remade America. Fergus Orwell. Well, uh, thanks for that uh, lovely introduction, Mark. Uh, thanks for the invitation. And I uh, thank the entire roundtable for, for having me. I wish we could do this in person, as uh, we'd originally planned, but... Uh, uh, this this is second second best, and uh, uh, let's. Uh, I, I I have a few images here, which which I, I want to run. Many some of them will be familiar to you. Many some some others perhaps not at all. Uh, uh, Mark, let's move to the first image, uh, first picture. Let's just keep this up for a little bit. It's just an opener. Uh, uh, for the most part, I speak to groups that are much less well-versed in the war than this group is. Uh, so I, I am going to uh, skip a lot of the obvious. Uh, I think most of you know that the first shot was fired at Fort Sumter. I don't need to explain that or where it is. Believe me, I've had to sometimes, um, thanks to 40 years of not teaching history and civics in a lot of American schools. Um, so this book, Congress at War, is a political history of the war. It's a narrative history. I'm not a political scientist. Uh, I see history as, as, as narrative. I see it in terms of storytelling. And I see history as largely made by the people who lived it, often groping, uh, groping towards a future they couldn't exactly predict with their hopes and their fears and their uncertainties and their uh, uh, their 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 biases and anxieties and and so on, which all of which is true of the political men who led the North during the Civil War. Uh, it's a history of the Northern uh, War politically. Um, 
most of the book takes place in on in and around Capitol Hill and the U.S. Capitol. But from time to time, I take us out and onto the battlefields uh, uh, in case we're feeling a little claustrophobic in uh, in the Senate and House chambers. Uh, so there is there is some uh, battle narrative here, but it's 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 fairly concise. Um, it's a book, as I'll explain in a little more detail in a few minutes, that really hinges on uh, on, a, on a quartet of, of men um, who were central to the waging of the, the war um, uh, from Washington. Um, let's go to the next image, uh, if we can. Thanks. Uh, okay, as you know, uh, so, uh, the first shots are fired in, in uh, uh, April of 1861. You probably also know, but perhaps not, that the Union Army in 1861 consisted of approximately 16,000 men, nearly all of whom were on the Western frontier fighting uh, Indians or fending off Indians or uh, uh, or frankly, sometimes not doing very much at all. The federal army by the end of the war uh, would rise to more than a million. About two million would be enlisted in the course of the war, one way or another. About 1.1 million were under arms at the end of the war. So um, uh, you, you have to imagine the prodigious uh, effort it took to expand an army of 16,000 men to 1.1 million. And in 1861, uh, there was a great deal of doubt that anything like that could be done. But of course, we have to bear in mind, nobody expected a war to last four years and to take uh, approximately 750,000 lives when you incorporate uh, the losses of both, both sides. Um, uh, most people expected it to last a few months, at most a few months, Scarcely anyone predicted that it could last a year. And I've read a, an extraordinary number of letters written at the time. Uh, and it is extremely rare uh, to find anyone who even imagined a long war. Uh, so what do you see here in this picture um, are federal troops, some of the very first troops to arrive in Washington. It looks as if they're storming a hill here, but in fact, it looks as if they're storming Capitol Hill, because that's what you see in, in the rear, uh, upper right-hand corner. They are, in, they are, in fact, maneuvering. Uh, these are men who have never been anywhere near a battle in their lives, probably. The odd man might have been in Mexico in the 40s. Um, but this is a scene that would have been witnessed uh, in the very early months of the war, when at the at the uh, desperate plea of Abraham Lincoln and Republicans in Congress, uh, uh, Northern governors dispatched uh, regiments of militia to Washington. And this is one of the first units. I believe it's a Massachusetts unit, but I can't swear to it. Um, and uh, there was uh, a great deal of fear in those in those days of April that. Uh, uh, Washington was at the mercy of, of an unknown number of armed secessionists across the river in, in 
Virginia. And indeed, there was significant sabotage of railroads and telegraph lines in, our, uh, in Maryland in an effort to isolate the capital. There was fear of um, uh, uh, that Washington would be captured by bands of Confederates. And indeed, uh, members of the Washington uh, city militia were in fact aligned with secessionists. Uh, and this was not a, com a completely groundless fear. So the sight of these first federal troops to arrive was profoundly heartening to unionists in the capital. Um, let's go to the next picture. Very familiar building, but a little odd looking because as you can see, the dome isn't complete because it was under construction in 1861. And this happens to be an image of Lincoln's first inauguration, by the way. Um, uh, and, in the, and in those days, the inauguration took place at the east front of the Capitol. Uh, today, it's on the west front. Um, and this is an important image to me, at least symbolically, because it shows the, the it, it's a kind of epitome, an icon of the incomplete union. And if you were on the grounds here, and if you look very closely in the lower left-hand corner, you see these white um, squares, rectangles. Those are chunks of marble that are eventually uh, uh, supposed to go onto the, uh, uh, onto the dome. Uh, and they seem to me symbolic of the fractured and fragmented Union, with its pieces literally strewn on the ground here in front of the Capitol, the Union that's been torn apart by the, by the, by the departure of uh, 11 uh, representatives of 11 states that become the Confederacy. Um, and it's unclear at the time whether this building will ever be completed. And there are fears in the minds of some that it's going to be perhaps the capital of the Confederacy. Fortunately, we know that didn't happen. Uh, and let's go to the next picture. Uh, we're going to see a scene. Uh, one of the very, very rare images it was strangely hard to find any images that showed Congress in session during the Civil War. Um, uh, but here it is, uh, and it's a, a wonderfully animated picture. If you look carefully, somebody on, on the left here is, is uh, could be Thaddeus Stevens, I'm not sure, uh, uh, in the midst of a speech. Uh, you have two gentlemen in the middle of the picture about to go at each other's throats. Uh, you have a couple of people who've heard it all before and are, have their feet up on their desks and are reading newspapers. And significantly, uh, in the upper right, you see a crowd of people. Those are the galleries. And they're packed because in 1861, and for indeed most of American history before that, the hottest show in Washington, and indeed in the country, was Congress in session. People came from everywhere to, uh, to watch these, these famous people whose speeches they've read in newspapers. Uh, uh, in action on the floor, and there was a kind of magic and a, a magnetism to everything happening here in Congress that was as far as could be from today's, uh, to my mind, very dismaying low public opinion of Congress. Um, 
and the other people up in the gallery, although you can't distinguish them, are journalists. And they're significant because the Civil War is covered. It is covered uh, literally 24-7 by journalists. First American War, that was true, much more uh, so than the Mexican War. Uh, and every day's debates are going out almost instantaneously on telegraph wires uh, to newspapers in New York, Chicago, uh, St. Louis, everywhere in the country. And Americans everywhere are deeply engrossed uh, in what's happening on the floor of Congress. Um, so this is the arena in which most of my book takes place. And I've worked hard to try to bring it alive in terms of human beings whom we can, we can uh, understand and relate to um, rather than uh, uh, a bunch of um, ciphers. And why, why is this book about Congress? I mean, I've had more than one person, including uh, one or two reviewers, who said, why isn't this book about Abraham Lincoln? Well, the simple answer, it's a little, little, little harsh, is, well, because it's about Congress. Uh, and there is an abundance of excellent books about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, there is a dearth of books about Congress. And in the 19th century, uh, Congress was by and large regarded as the central engine of power in the federal government, not the presidency. We today tend to look at the presidency through a, lens, a 20th century lens that really derives from uh, the era of Franklin Roosevelt, um, uh, of, a, of a dynamic, proactive uh, uh, president with a far-reaching agenda who comes into office and tells you what he's going to start doing in the first hundred days and who will essentially ask Congress to uh, just put into legislation what he wants. And that was very much not the case in the 19th century. Not at all. You have to, you have to kind of erase that set of assumptions about how the government works. Lincoln, too, was a Whig. And the Whigs significantly regarded Congress as the, as the uh, main center of power. Now, Lincoln, for his day, was indeed more more forceful and active, given the circumstances of the war, than almost any president before him, except possibly Jackson. Although, in the course of the war, he became much more uh, formidable than Jackson, I think. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was a learn-on-the-job president. Um, uh, he, he didn't go to Washington to fight a war. Uh, the Republicans had an agenda, and it did not include war. The Republicans, as you know, had uh, uh, never um, been in charge of the government. Uh, so Congress is, and, the, and, and the, the Republicans have never had majorities before. So suddenly you have men, right, from Abraham Lincoln through many members of Congress who really have never governed. And they're struggling to figure out, first, uh, how to make the government work, and two, how to fight a war. Uh, I'm not sure that there's been any instance comparable in American history. Um, and uh, I'm going to read you a very short quote from Albert Riddle, who was a radical Republican, uh, very, very active in, in uh, the, the wartime Congresses. And he wrote a little later, Mr. Lincoln, his cabinet, and the 37th Congress were elected to do anything 
everything except what fell to them to do, fight the greatest civil war in history. It came upon them as an utter surprise. And what did Congress face? Uh, a multitude of truly national existential challenges. How could the North be uh, mobilized for a war of unimaginable magnitude? Was Congress or the president uh, responsible for leading the war effort? Uh, could the Republicans manage to govern at all? Uh, should the war be fought with respect for the sanctity of Southern property, including slaves, or with a ruthlessness, the hard war, uh, that would bring the seceded states more quickly to their knees? Could the Constitution survive the suspension of civil rights in the name of national security? Uh, a question which perhaps most people, uh, not necessarily including this group, don't associate with the Civil War at all, but it was an extremely vital and contentious issue. How would the war be paid for? Uh, would the financial burden break the Northern economy? And repeatedly, there were fears that it would. Uh, what should white Americans do about slavery? Could Republicans prevent their party from splitting between anti-slavery radicals and those who are willing to tolerate slavery as long as it was contained in the South. You know, of course, the Democratic Party had already split in two. Should African-Americans be recruited to serve in the army? Would white soldiers refuse to fight alongside them? And after the war was won, assuming that the North won it, by no means clear until 1864, should the Southern states be broken up, reduced to the status of territories? Should ex-Confederates be prosecuted as war criminals? These are elements of reconstruction, but everything I've just listed uh, is under discussion beginning as early as 1861. Every, every part of it, every part of it. Congress is talking about emancipation long before Abraham Lincoln is. And real emancipation, not, Colin, not the exporting or deporting of, of, of um, uh, freed slaves, but emancipation for people who will remain in America. There was no consensus on any of these questions that I've mentioned. Uh, and bear in mind that the suspicion of central government and distrust of a strong executive and embedded traditions of states' rights, which were as powerful in the North as the South, threatened to undermine the country's war-making ability. Uh, as you perhaps know, uh, there was real anxiety that certain states would defect, essentially, from the North in the course of the war, Indiana being, being the most prominent case in point, um, and holding on to most of the border states was touch and go at certain points. Uh, many unionists, especially in the border states, regarded any kind of tampering with slavery as a threat <coughs> to basic property rights. And I'm going to quote Representative John Crisfield, who was a pro-slavery unionist, there were many, from Maryland, who declared, if you take from us today our right to hold slaves, how long will it be before you will take from us some other constitutional right? Um, so these, these questions are all being argue, argued. And uh, I want to underscore again, nobody knew what the outcome was going to be until late 1864. Nobody knew. And the degree of anxiety that was felt by members of Congress, not to mention the Northern public, is extraordinary. Um, uh, and there were 
quite a few instances, often following Northern defeats in major battles. Um, uh, Fredericksburg, for example, uh, and, and others um, uh, that, that deeply disheartened the North. And the political effort to, to, to um, win back public confidence is tremendous. And I want to, because I probably won't bring it up again, I want to mention what to me I realized was the great unfought battle of the war, or then very much fought, the great kind of underappreciated battle of the war, that's what I mean, which is raising the money to fight the war. Uh, the sums were absolutely prodigious. And the federal government was in deficit in 1861, thanks to gross mismanagement and possibly deliberate malfeasance by the Buchanan people in the Buchanan administration. And uh, uh, so a great deal of really creative political effort went into finding ways of, of producing money to buy those uniforms, to buy those shoes for the soldiers, to feed the soldiers, to buy cavalry horses, uh, uh, to, uh, to, feed, to, to buy fodder for the horses, mules, wagons, to forge cannon, buy ships for the Navy, and so on and so on. Um, and it all had to come from somewhere. And I think often when we uh, become immersed in talking about the war, we tend to talk almost exclusively about things happening on the battlefield, dramatic as that and, and uh, seductive as that always is. Uh, uh, and I, I began walking battlefields in 1957 when I was a kid. My parents took me to Gettysburg. Uh, so I'm, I, I, uh, one thing, I live in California at the moment. The thing I most miss being out here is, is that I, I, I'm, I'm a little far from any of the wartime battlefields from my home in Washington, D.C., uh, and I look forward to going back. But, uh, you know, how it became possible to put the armies in the field uh, is complex, it's dramatic, it's, it, it involves many cliffhangers and a lot of doubt. Um, and so, actually, let's move on to the next picture, and then uh, there there be a nice segue here. Uh, Okay, most of you, I suspect, recognize this uh, gentleman, Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania, uh, the uh, probably the most outspoken abolitionist in Congress, lifelong abolitionist. Uh, and Thaddeus Stevens was chairman of the House Ways and, Ways and Means Committee. He's associated, right, rightfully so, with, with advocating for the most uh, radical, the most forward-looking, uh, race-related legislation that Congress discussed and enacted. Uh, but as chairman of Ways and Means, he, for, in the House, was also the man who had the purse strings. And Thaddeus Stevens's role uh, in, in, in helping to finance the war to figure out how it could be financed is, again, I think underappreciated and immensely significant and, and largely accounts for the stature uh, uh, he held by the end of the war during Reconstruction. It wasn't just because, or maybe even mostly because of his, his uh, forward-looking racial views, but because he had been such a successful congressman during the war. Um, and 
he's the first of four principal characters whom I carry through the entire book. Uh, two of them are Republicans, uh, radical Republicans, Thaddeus Stevens. Uh, let's go to the next image. And uh, Ben Wade, senator from uh, Ohio, uh, less well known today, but a titan at the time. Uh, and uh, uh, he and, and Stevens are pretty much of like mind on, on issues related to emancipation, uh, race, recruiting black troops, and fighting a hard war, uh, uh, which means that their stock steadily, steadily rose as public opinion uh, fell in step more and more behind them as more Northerners recognized that only a hard war was going to be a war that the North would win. And um, uh, the other reason I, I, I chose to highlight Wade, uh, apart from, if you read the book, you'll, you'll get this story. Apart from his extraordinary uh, activity on the day of the first Battle of Bull Run, when uh, not quite single-handedly, but not with, with only a couple of other hands, uh, managed to stanch the uh, uh, the rout of, of the Union Army until organized troops under William Tecumseh Sherman, by the way, could come up. Uh, that's another story. The other main reason I, I, I spend a lot of time with him on the book is that he became the chairman uh, of the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War, which I'm guessing many of you are familiar with, but perhaps some not. Of course, being a joint committee, it included both senators and congressmen. Its mandate was extremely broad. It asserted immense power for waging and overseeing the war. Uh, yes. Uh, the, the committee had a tug of war with Lincoln. Lincoln, being a good Whig in his heart, never, ever denied any an, an answer to any question that Congress posed to him, by the way, because he recognized Congress's prerogatives, unlike some other presidents we've had. Um, uh, but the Joint Committee had a mandate to um, investigate any and every aspect of the war. And in the course of the war, they interviewed and occasionally interrogated hundreds of federal soldiers, nearly all officers, including many of the top officers. And uh, they perhaps did more than any other other uh, lobby to, to finally um, uh, unseat uh, George McClellan. Uh, 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 again, I don't need to explain why, why they're why uh, people who sought a hard war wanted to, to uh, do away with McClellan. Um, there was a lot of criticism of the committee after the war for being too nosy, for interfering in political affairs, and so, uh, rather military affairs, sorry. Uh, but this com the committee saw itself as, as an imperative, uh, having an imperative obligation as civilians to oversee the war effort and not leave it to the generals. And it's a subject that one can debate. Um, happy to talk about it later if anybody cares to. Uh, but uh, I come down on the committee's side on this. Uh, and uh, Wade and the committee wielded immense power. And in one specific, and, and, and the committee undertook one investigation, which I want to highlight because uh, it was the investigation into the 
Fort Pillow Massacre of 1864, when um, a Union garrison in Tennessee near Memphis was massacred by uh, uh, Bedford Forest's cavalry. And there are those who uh, want to want to uh, relieve Forrest from responsibility for this. I don't. Uh, but Wade and another member of the committee were on site uh, only a week to 10 days after the massacre. They interviewed survivors, both civilian and, and uh, uh, military. Um, and that, like all the committee's uh, uh, investigations, by the way, they are available online uh, from the Library of Congress. Uh, and they make really compelling reading. They're pretty well written, pretty well put together, usually by Wade, personally. And uh, if you want to, if you want to have a sense of what battles, uh, what what the aftermath of battles was like in real time uh, throughout the war, that's all in the committee records. Uh, listen to officers' testimony. Uh, so let's go to the next image. Um, uh, this is the third of my characters, a wonderful profile here, William Pitt Fessenden of Maine, who counted at the beginning of the war as a conservative Republican, but increasingly he voted with the radicals in the course of the war because he too finally uh, came to see that, that the war would have to be a hard one. He was chairman of the Senate Finance Committee and he figures it significantly, I've already, kind of addressed the subject of finance, but he worked in tandem often with uh, Thaddeus Stevens because they were the two men who were responsible for financial legislation. Um, he, had, he had four sons, three of them were in, uh, fought in the war, were in a Union uniform, but Ben Wade had, a son, had two sons in the war. Thaddeus Stevens had no sons. He had two nephews in the war, one of whom was killed. Um, uh, Fessenden, one of Fessenden's sons uh, became an amputee. Another one was killed at Second Bull Run. Uh, his letters are extraordinarily fine. He was very eloquent, both in Congress and in his letters. Many of them are online uh, at, at Bowdoin College in uh, Maine. Uh, and he, he epitomized a, a kind of staunch Yankee commitment to the war, whatever it took. Now, the fourth individual who looms large in my book, uh, let's go to him. Uh, next picture, please. Thank you. Uh, now, this is a guy who I suspect many of you at least know by name, um, uh, the Arch Copperhead uh, of the North, Clement L. Vallandingham, uh, who represented Dayton, Ohio, in, in Congress. He was uh, the photograph is a little washed out, unfortunately. He, he was regarded as an extremely handsome man, quite charismatic, very eloquent uh, uh, orator, um, very well-educated, well-read, uh, and an absolute dyed-in-the-wool, dark-as-they-come racist. Um, uh, his... He was also, he would have been perfectly content to let the Southern states go. Uh, he was the leader uh, and quite an extreme leader of the Peace Democrats in the first couple of years of the war. Uh, he was immensely popular in his district. 
he was gerrymandered out of that district uh, by by um, Republicans in in uh, uh, 1860. Well, the 1862 election. He was uh, subsequently uh, in 1863 uh, arrested uh, by Ambrose Burnside, who, after his debacle at Fredericksburg, was appointed uh, uh, commander of uh, the district of the uh, north of Ohio, north of the Ohio River, and uh, uh, somewhat overzealously uh, had troops uh, take a train into Dayton, uh, yank the Landingham out of his home, throw him on the train and put him in the pokey in Cincinnati. Now, the Landingham had courted this. I mean, he was not, he was far from an innocent. He was a very, very astute uh, political man. And he believed the North was going to lose. He did not want to see the North win. He promised at the beginning of the war, he would never vote a penny uh, for the war. <clears throat> and uh, I, in my book, he figures as kind of the counterexample as being the most outspoken and, and I have to say eloquent of the opponents of the war. And uh, in short, so you'll know what happened to him, uh, uh, there was such an outcry, even from Republicans over the violation of his right of free speech, frankly, uh, despite his remarks being close to treason, if not over the line, uh, that uh, Lincoln ordered him taken out of that of that prison, in where he remained only very briefly in Cincinnati, or sorry, it was Columbus, not Cincinnati, and uh, uh, he was he was uh, carried into uh, Kentucky, then Tennessee, and he was shoved, literally shoved across the lines uh, into the arms of the Confederates, Braxton Bragg, as it happens, uh, who didn't want him, who didn't want him, they didn't know what to do with him, and this went all the way up to Robert E. Lee, what to do with Vallandigham, and. Uh, uh, Lee uh, uh, writes in a letter uh, to Jefferson Davis, as I recollect, it's in the book, uh, that Vallandigham was of immense use to the Confederacy in the North as somebody who helped undermine Northern morale, but he was of no use to them in the Confederacy. So they didn't want him either. And they, they kind of hustled him to Charleston, put him on a boat, sent him to British Bermuda, where he was uh, transferred to another steamboat and went to Canada. He went all the way up to finally Montreal, went up the St. Lawrence River, and wound up in Windsor, Ontario, opposite Detroit, where he sat out the next uh, year or so. And from where he ran in absentia as the Democratic candidate for the governor of Ohio, he lost. Um, there's more to Vallandigham. Um, uh, the question that usually comes up is, it, was he a traitor or was he not? It's uh, the smoking gun doesn't seem to exist, but I think he went over the edge in 1864. Um, so uh, I think we're, we're kind of really racing along here. So and I, I wanna make sure there's plenty of time for questions. So I, I'm going to, uh, uh, well, let's go to the next picture first because it's a, it's a great image. Uh, copperheads, copperheads, uh, which is how they were portrayed in Harper's uh, Weekly. And uh, Northern readers would certainly have imagined one of these, these, these rather 
angry faces uh, as Vallandigham uh, when they saw this beer in Harper's. Um, and so as not to leave you visually with this rather unpleasant image, let's go ahead quickly one more. This is Abraham Lincoln, whom I do not talk about very much in the book. He's mostly off stage, uh, except when he's interacting with Congress. Why does he have no beard here? This picture was taken very shortly before the 1860 campaign. And I wanted you to see Lincoln, or readers to see Lincoln, before he was Father Abraham, uh, haggard and lined from four years of war, incredibly aged. This is Lincoln not knowing what he's stepping into before his election. And let's go one more picture. It's in. And we'll leave, let's leave this one up until I finish. And this is a, a joyous picture. It's one of the other very, very few um, images of Congress in action. It's the passage of the 13th Amendment in January 1865, when member, members of Congress, senators, congressmen, people wept en masse. And they knew the United States had changed forever with the passage of this amendment. Um, and one of the great, great triumphs of the Congress. Okay, so besides this, which we all, I think, know about, uh, what else did they do? What else did they accomplish? And I think it's quite fair to say, I've written about several Congresses, that uh, the wartime Congresses, the 37th and 38th, were two of the most productive in American history. Um, Senator John Sherman, the brother of William Tecumseh Sherman, and a very powerful senator in his own right, predicted, and I'm going to quote again, that the landmark laws they passed will be a monument to good or evil. They cover such vast sums, delegate and regulate such vast powers, and are so far reaching in their efforts, sorry, so far reaching in their effects, that generations will be affected well or ill by them. It's not, a, it's not an exaggeration. What did Congress do? It raised hundreds of thousands of troops for the Union. Uh, it only became possible to raise troops through legislation. It instituted the country's first military draft when volunteers weren't sufficient anymore. It pushed consistently against Lincoln for more aggressive generals, harsher strategy against the South for the recruitment of black troops. In financing the war, the, the Congress created the country's first national currency, the forerunner of the Internal Revenue Service, and the foundation for the Federal Reserve System. And long before Lincoln became willing to contemplate general emancipation, members of Congress, that is Stevens, Ben Wade, demanded it. Um, in a series of earlier laws that turned abolitionism from a fringe belief into public policy. In addition, I'm going to mention three acts which typically are not thought of as, as wartime legislation, but they were. The Homestead Act changed the face of the West. The Pacific Railway Act committed the government to linking the country's heartland with California by rail, which was the largest and most expensive infrastructure project undertaken in the United States up to that time. The Land-Grant Colleges Act laid the groundwork for public state universities uh, nationwide. Uh, as I said, it was war that made these possible. All these ideas had been in the public realm since the 1840s. 
at least since the 1840s. Uh, uh, but they were stonewalled by the South. Why? Because the South uh, feared uh, a proliferation of free states in the West that would once and for all overwhelm them in Congress. Uh, that fear had a basis. Yes, that would have happened. Um, so they perceived their interest clearly, so long as their interest was in protecting slavery at all costs. And less happily, I think, the widespread monitoring of anti-war dissidents created a precedent for the government surveillance of private communications and allegedly unpatriotic political activity, like the Landinghams, that has become a feature of American life subsequently. Um, and not least, and I think perhaps I should sort of end with this short, this next thing that I'm going to say. Not least, Congress began a racial and economic revolution that overthrew the South's cotton economy and transformed four million slaves from pieces of property into soldiers and eventually citizens, culminating here in the uh, 13th, later the 14th and 15th Amendments. As Frederick Douglass said at one point during the war, the angel of liberty has one ear of the nation and the demon of slavery the other. Both of them whispered and shouted into the ears of Congress as it struggled forward. And we know which angel was the louder. And perhaps, perhaps I'll just say one last thing. There's a quote that I have here from uh, William Pitt Fessenden that I particularly like. And uh, this is a book of history. It's not about, it's not a book of public affairs about the United States today. It's not an argument one way or another about today's uh, Congress uh, and how it functions and so on, although you might draw some conclusions from the book uh, that are not unflattering to, to modern Congresses, by the way. I, I, am, I am not a deep-dyed critic of government. I think we do our government, uh, uh, our, our, our founders and the nation's founding documents, a tremendous disservice to disparage a government as much as in Congress as much as we do. But so Congress, you know, may seem, and I think it does seem to uh, a lot of Americans, and one might even feel that way this week, uh, uh, that Congress is needlessly quarrelsome and inefficient. But ultimately, its workings are just the cacophony of our multitude of American voices distilled to a cadre of representatives and senators. And Fessenden understood that Congress was a stew of self-interests seasoned with passions. These are his words. And that to accomplish anything required creative skill, tolerance, and immense patience. Republican politics, politics of a republic, that is, is always messy. The founders knew it. They fought a revolution not to tame politics, but to put politics with all its frustrating turbulence into government. Now, as Fessenden put it, I'm quoting, I would not have perfect quiet always in a republic, especially. You never find quiet except under a tyranny. So let's leave it there. Um, and if I've uh, gone on a bit too long, I apologize, but you certainly have time for questions. I'll be happy to answer any. And I'm willing to stay on as long as uh, people want to talk to me. Thank you, Mark. 
Okay, so you can hear. Well, thank you, Fergus, uh, for an enlightening uh, talk. Uh, I don't know here. I'm relying on Mark Kunis to yeah, let me know if we have some chats here. But I, I guess uh, while Mark is doing his work, I will ask you, uh, oh, here, here you something here. Well, no, I will not ask you. Uh, let's see. If, uh, some of these are just comments. Uh, Question. And we'll thank you. There's a couple compliments here, and so thank you for the compliments. Uh, we do have a question uh, from Dave Hankey, and it is a very good question. I was thinking of something in the same uh, uh, same line. How do you think the Congress of, of the Civil War era compares with the Congress of the New Deal in terms of uh, legislation and lasting legacies? Absolutely excellent question. And I do happen to mention that uh, uh, briefly in, in, in the book but only, only briefly. I think there were four Congresses uh, in American history that were paramount in their effectiveness and decisiveness. Uh, the first Congress, I wrote a book about the first Congress, it was quite remarkable. Uh, the Civil War Congresses, that's actually two Congresses together, 37th and 38th, which we've been talking about. Next, the New Deal Congresses, which incorporates a couple of Congresses. And finally, uh, Lyndon Johnson's um, great society congresses. Uh, all of the all of these were prodigiously productive, and uh, the New Deal congresses compare very well. I think. Um, I mean, I, I'm not the kind of writer or political scientist that loves to do big data tabulation and so on, uh, which frankly it tends to put me to sleep. But uh, uh, I think. It probably would be possible to make a a data a, a comparison uh, of practical the practical amount of legislation done by civil war congresses and and uh, uh, the New Deal, but they're absolutely comparable. They were both they were both transformative, absolutely transformative. And I would say, in that regard, the civil war congresses were most like the New Deal congresses. The first Congress and the uh, uh, Great Society Congresses were vastly productive, but not transformative of American society in the same way. Uh, very well. Uh, our next question uh, comes from I, I don't know who this is. I, it's just uh, we just get uh, we just get the uh, uh, ask the question. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, what do you think about civil? military relations under these congresses. Do you think it was wise for Congress to promote the careers of generals like John Pope based on their politics? <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, an absolutely unavoidable question, especially um, uh, uh, you know, as I said earlier, I, I hold the I would like to see the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War restored to a higher stature in, in historical memory and its, its treatment by historians. Yes, uh, radicals in Congress promoted uh, John Pope, uh, uh, Ambrose Burnside, um, uh, Hooker, uh, um, 
a couple of others. Uh, uh, you, you, you know who I'm talking about. I'm, I'm forgetting the uh, governor, of, uh, one time governor of, uh, uh, well, Fremont being another one, uh, and so on. Uh, men who were politically more aligned with the radicals. Um, uh, they were, and were failures, frankly. Uh, some of them were utter disasters. Uh, others were basically promoted beyond their abilities. Uh, Ambrose Burnside famously begged not to be uh, made the commander of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, he was a perfectly good corps commander. It was quite a good one. He was very good at, at, at taking orders and carrying them out. But as a but as a uh, an overall commander, as we know, it was, you know, I, I I'm fortunate. My one of my uh, 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 great grandfathers was in the Battle of Fredericksburg in the 88th New York in the Irish Brigade, and I have to believe he ducked at Fredericksburg, or I wouldn't be here, um, uh, since they suffered horrendous casualties. Uh, so yeah, you can fault the committee. You have to fault the committee, and you have to fault the radicals. On on letting th letting their political biases trump um, their judgment sometimes, and there are a couple of other examples of that. Not only, I mean, Ben Wade, for example, had a an absolutely fanatic uh, uh, confidence in volunt in the in the in the in the elan of of volunteer troops. He hated West Pointers as a matter of principle. This was not, uh, his critique of West Point wasn't unfair, actually, because it produced elitists and conservatives uh, by the standards of the day. Uh, but uh, the war wouldn't have been better fought by men who didn't know what they were doing. Although lots of, lots of um, amateurs did indeed rise, rise to demonstrate that they had uh, latent military ability. But I, I you know, I, I uh, I, I, you know, I do think we ha we have to lay that at the doorstep of of uh, uh, radicals like like Wade. Um, though uh, it was always it was always harder for for uh, abolitionists and radicals to get advancement in the extremely conservative army. Uh, Alan Guelzo talks about that in a very in a very interesting respect. Uh, in the about the Army of the Potomac on the cusp of uh, uh, the Battle of Gettysburg, um, and some of the the military politics of the Army of the Potomac. But I'm getting into the weeds here, and I, I, I uh, let, let's take another question. We can always come back to this if anybody wants to. I can see half of Dennis Doyle's question, or D. Doyle, I guess it's Dennis, uh, but not the second half of it. It's, it's cut off. Well, okay. Uh, next, we have a question from Bruce. Uh, I, I'm only seeing half of the question. Uh, uh, Click on it. 
Yeah. Oh, here we go. Got it. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. Hello from Dennis Doyle. As you have discussed in your book, can you describe the major debates over the drafting of men by congressional acts, especially later in the war? Uh, I was got it. Sorry to have uh, wasn't paying close enough attention. Uh, there was bitter debate over the draft. There was fear uh, that the draft wouldn't work. Uh, as we know, to a degree, it didn't work. Uh, comparatively few men who were drafted, comparatively, wound up actually, uh, actually serving uh, because so many who were drafted, uh, on one hand, uh, were able to buy substitutes, uh, or because the federal government, in order to avoid uh, provoking uh, virtual rebellion uh, in certain states, particularly in the Midwest, uh, quietly, <clears throat> quietly uh, did not uh, actually draft men uh, who were liable to be drafted. Uh, and the, 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 the shrinking number of white men willing to serve drafted or otherwise, uh, <clears throat> uh, was one of the great motivators in, uh, conservatives in Congress. And that's to say conservative Republicans of the time, uh, and even some Democrats in supporting the, uh, recruitment of black volunteers, 170,000. Blacks uh, uh, served in the war. Those were 170,000 white soldiers who might have been impossible to find otherwise, by, especially toward the end of the war. Uh, the other element here is also bounties. Uh, you know, if you 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 might you might be drafted. On the other hand, you could walk three blocks uh, uh, to the next to another neighborhood and, and get a uh, you know a one two three four five six seven hundred dollar bounty. If you enlisted, and as as we all know, many of the troops, uh, who by no means all, but many, were far far less motivated later in the war for precisely these reasons. Bear in mind that the draft is also drafting Democrats who may be Vallandigham men. They may be anti-war Democrats. Uh, they may be hostile to Lincoln, hostile to the government. Um, yet, you know, by and large, they're patriotic Americans and they serve. They serve no matter what their politics were, though um, there's much more to be said about, about desertion than has been said generally. The numbers were truly extraordinary in certain, from certain states, especially. It's a very, very tricky issue. But Congress was, uh, a lot of members of Congress did not want to enact a draft and they felt pushed to the wall because they were running out of men. We uh, lost you there for a moment, Fergus, our connection. And so uh, oh. we skipped over a question from Bruce Allardyce, which is, how would you rank the importance of the transcontinental railroad legislation? Uh, well, paradoxically, I, I think you can say that it was one of the most important pieces of legislation uh, passed during the war because it, it, it was one of those that changed America. Uh, bear in mind, at the beginning of the war, there was tremendous fear that the, the that the West Coast, that's California, Oregon, and the Washington Territory, and and what becomes Nevada, would break loose and secede too. That if secession, if any part of the country succeeded in seceding, uh, there would be others. A precedent would be set, 
and the West Coast was absolutely the paramount, uh, uh, they were the most likely candidate for that because it was economically going to be self-efficient, self-sufficient, and indeed wealthy. Uh, so there was a great drive to, to uh, uh, tie the West Coast to, to the heart of the country by rail. Um, that said, everybody knew how important it was. However, there was almost no debate about it. There were almost none. Uh, why was that? Uh, it was a bit surprising because Republicans and before them Whigs were pretty much agreed on this, had been agreed on this for decades, and they'd been stymied by, by um, Southern legislators uh, uh, who, who, who didn't want to facilitate the development of the West without being able to control it. Um, so here's one of the most important things, but they didn't talk very much about it because they didn't need to because they were already agreed because the, all the opponents had left. Very well. Uh, next, a question from Mark, uh, Mark Crilly. Uh, he asks, uh, I think he has several questions, but uh, he asks first, uh, have you studied the Congress of the Confederacy? What sort of relationship did uh, congressmen of the Union have with those of the, uh, the Confederate con Congress? Can you answer well, that? Well, first part of the question, first, they had no relationship whatsoever during the war. Although many of the individuals knew each other uh, from pre-war days. Um, I have not studied the Confederate Congress for a couple of reasons. One, uh, one, I'm interested in the way the Union fought the war. It's what I, it's what I really, uh, and I, I've written other books and in other books about, the, about abolitionism, about the debates over slavery and so forth. And I come to this, uh, the political side of the war with a particular interest in how uh, the forward thinkers of the wartime Congress, uh, uh, how the abolitionists moved from the fringe to the center and then became, by the Reconstruction period, really the cutting edge, the leaders of, of Congress. Uh, and the other reason uh, is that the, the records of the Confederate Congress were burned in Richmond. Goodbye. Uh, and there's very, very little. Uh, I think there are, there are historians who are maybe more interested in what the Confederacy was doing than, than I am. However, I will recommend a book. Uh, I'm, I'm not recollecting the title offhand, but um, there's an excellent, fairly recent book uh, about uh, the Southern Senator. I, I, he'll, I'll probably remember as soon as we're done with the call, but it was he, this, the Southern the man was a Southern senator before the war from Mississippi. He was Jefferson Davis's rival. Uh, oh, it's called the, the Man the Man Who Punched Jefferson Davis. Funny title, clunky title. Excellent. A lot of people book. would have liked to have done that. <laughs> he, he did. Uh, um, his name is still eluding me, but others will remember. Uh, significant pre-war uh, senator. Uh, who went with Mississippi, but he was actually kind of a conflicted unionist. I mean, it, he was like an apoplectic elf in his personality. But he spent he spent the war he spent the war as uh, 
uh, a member of the Confederate Congress. And there's a lot. Henry S. Foote. Thank you. Thank Foot, you. I, I thought Henry it was Foote. And I also knew that Bruce would know the answer, but I, yeah. that was my yeah, guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I, guess I, Bruce would know. <laughs> I, I should. I wrote about Foote in my uh, great debate book. Yeah, yeah, Henry, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, but at any I rate. I was about to defer to, 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 to Bruce. But in any event, we have another question here. This is from uh, Jim Aducci. Uh, can you comment on the troops voting in the 1862 and 1864 congressional elections? Were there noticeable trends? <laughs> okay, I, I, there, there are two different angles uh, from which to approach that. Uh, uh, I, I think I'm going to I'm going to uh, pose another question here to open it up. Uh, was there any Was there any election fraud? Yes, I suppose so. <laughs> yes, there was there was quite a bit of it. Uh, was there voter intimidation in the army? Yes. Oh, I suppose. An, so. an old American tradition, honored or dishonored to the present day. Um, uh, and I, I quote a couple of letters in uh, in the book from uh, actually happens to be a pair of brothers who are I think in different regiments in the, in the Western. Uh, theater of the war, uh, one of whom, uh, anyway, one of whom says, yeah, there were about three men in my company who were, who were going to vote for uh, uh, McClellan, but we took care of them. We took them out in the back. And when we were done with them, they didn't vote. And uh, uh, the distribution of ballots, some states uh, permitted soldiers to vote in the field. Others did not. Um, and ballots had to be ballots were all paper, of course. So they had to be they shipped from the state, carried physically carried to uh, a battlefront, to regiments in the battlefront. And uh, uh, I, there's there's another story which I think is in the book about a a, Dem a Democratic Party agent from New York City going down to distribute Democratic ballots somewhere in the Army of the Potomac. Uh, uh, and saying and saying uh, uh, the officer in charge the, the, the in charge of the um, of the unit that he he was supposed to go to uh, told him to get out of there or he was going to shoot him. Uh, so I guess that counts as voter intimidation. Uh, uh, did Democrats vote? Yes, they did. But uh, Republicans rolled up, in, especially in 1864, immense majorities in the army. Uh, the Democrats, as you probably know, had expected McClellan to win the army vote, he didn't. Uh, how much fraud was there? How much intimidation? Nobody knows. Nobody knows, but anecdotally, quite a bit of it. Um, and it's also true, and I, I, what I'm gonna say is what I hold to be so, that uh, the soldiers wanted to finish the war. Even soldiers who might not be Republicans wanted to finish the war they had spent two, three, four years under arms, um, and they didn't want to give it up for McClellan, whom they knew would end the war. He was going to call a, a, uh, a ceasefire, and it's close to unimaginable that the army could have been motivated to fight again, even after an allegedly temporary ceasefire. The soldiers knew it. Uh, so even though the returns may have been fairly skewed, 
But bear, bear in mind that voter intimidation and fraud is pretty common in a lot of states. And in New York City, it was, it happens to be my home, my my great-grandfather, same one who fought in the Civil War, was a, a Tammany, Tammany Hall operative, said to say, uh, who I, 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 I have to imagine probably did his bit to double and triple vote in his day. Uh, uh, so even though this took place in the Army, it wasn't unknown in civilian life either. Just as a follow-up to that question, uh, was the Army, uh, were votes uh, for Republicans uh, cast in greater uh, amounts in 64 than in 62? Yes. Yes. More soldiers could vote in the field in 64. Many, many more could vote in the field. In 62, comparatively few could. In 64, a lot could. I, I'm not seeing any further questions. I just had uh, one of my own, uh, which may be beyond the scope of your uh, your book, but it, but it involves the uh, the Republicans and specifically the radicals. Was it was it because of the policies of the executive of Johnson, or or, or more because some of these Republicans were starting to lose elections? in 66 and 68 that the influence of the radicals, despite passing the, 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 the 14th Amendment uh, later uh, and then the 15th, despite that, that, they, that, that the radicals' influence uh, seemed to wane uh, by the late 1860s, so that it really wasn't 1876 when the North finally lost its interest in the kind of reconstruction that we all would have liked to have seen, that Lincoln probably would have liked to have put into effect, was it really much earlier? Because the influence, for whatever reason, of the, the radical Republicans had already waned by the time Grant even took power, took, took office. Uh, well, well, in actuality, the Republicans won a gigantic congressional victory in 1866. Um, Johnson Johnson campaigned vigorously around the North in 66 and was generally made an ass of himself. I mean, I'm not being wholly subjective by that. I mean, that was sort of the newspaper consensus uh, at the time. The Republicans won crushing uh, majorities, which and, and in effect elected the most radical Congress uh, in 66. Now, in those days, there was a one-year-long uh, lame duck period. In other words, a Congress elected in uh, uh, November of um, 66 didn't actually take office until December of 67. It's different today. Uh, and this, this uh, uh, incongruity uh, factors fairly often into the politics at the time. It was a problem. But at any rate, so that that Congress elected in, in 66, uh, one, it, it manifested uh, the public sentiment and it shifted more, more conservative or moderate Republicans already in, in government uh, in the direction of radicalism because the will of the country was clear. Um, there was a widespread popular revulsion at... at uh, Johnson's having opened the doors to only recently 
Confederate office holders uh, to, to take over again in Southern states. It's a very complex and much debated situation at the time. And indeed, the book I'm currently writing is pretty much about that. Um, so uh, then in, in December of 67, the new Congress is seated. And uh, uh, actually, I think they met earlier that year, but uh, uh, it's very radical. So and then 68 is another debacle for the Democrats who are uh, who are still divided. A lot of Southern whites are either disenfranchised or sit it out uh, uh, in, in, in their bitterness. And uh, uh, Northern Democrats are themselves to some degree still divided. I mean, some have by now decided to be Republicans like John Logan and, and some others, General John Logan, uh, and, and so on. Um, uh, and the, the Democratic Party does very poorly in 68, as it does again in 72, another disaster for the Democratic Party, uh, different, different, different political landscape in 72. But so when Grant comes in, Grant has a radical mandate. It takes him, and then he, he Grant takes his time, but he essentially embraces the radical agenda on Reconstruction in the South while he's president. He's extremely decisive about cracking down on, on uh, the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, it's, he was extraordinary on this. Um, Quite apart from what we might have to say about his, uh, you know, the uh, about about financial improprieties of other people in his government, not Grant personally, but his choice of of men was not always the best. Uh, but until uh, until seventy, until eighteen seventy, he has a strong, very strong Republican, uh, radical Republican uh, Congress behind him. The 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 the, the Republicans do very badly in 1870. The wind has changed, you're right. The North is losing interest. Southern trouble, there, there always seems to be a problem in the South. Boys wanna come home. The soldiers uh, hate occupation duty in the South. Uh, uh, Northern voters are sick of African-Americans. They're sick of the South's problems. I mean, not everybody, of course, but, but enough to begin to turn the tide and Grant loses support after after 71 for the radical program that he has sustained up to then in the South. This is all very interesting. Uh, well, we'll have to take that up after you write the book on Reconstruction. We can have a long discussion on that uh, then. I, I, would, I, for one, will look forward to that because I, I, I think that uh, Reconstruction is something that our whole country needs to have a very long conversation on. I, I think our country could learn a lot uh, from that. And uh, so we will look forward to that. We, uh, we have no further uh, questions. So I, 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 I guess it's time for us to adjourn the meeting. But before doing so, uh, I'd like to remind everybody that our meeting next month uh, will be on October 8th, uh, Friday. Uh, as usual, second second Friday of the month. Uh, we have yet to set the exact time, but I suspect it will be by and large the same time. I don't know if it'll be at the same station. Uh, this one came from Mark Kunis's office, but uh, we, we may be uh, we may be uh, broadcasting from somewhere else by then. But we will have Stuart Sanders, 
on Perryville. Uh, Stewart has, was ill and canceled originally uh, because he, he does not want to travel. But when I told him we were doing our programs on Zoom, he volunteered to come back via Zoom. So we will have him uh, next month. So with that, I thank uh, Fergus Ordwick. Uh, you are a lovely man uh, for agreeing to come uh, uh, talk to us. Uh, and uh, uh, I look forward to uh, diving into your other books, especially The Great Debate. That looks very intriguing to me. It's an interesting subject. Uh, another uh, episode in our history that doesn't get enough attention. And thank all of you for uh, participating tonight. Uh, I, I think under the circumstances, we had, a, we had a good turnout. I think as the months go by and everyone becomes, uh, uh, you know, uh, how should I say, accommodated to the format, we will, uh, we will uh, do better. So uh, thanks much. And uh, I think everybody on the, uh, who's participated in the, the event tonight has already paid dues, so I don't have to ask.